What's up, guys? Welcome back. Episode 87 of the DLSS Podcast. I'm your host, D-Love. Just me this week. I'm going to be recapping and breaking down all the action from UFC 262. Took place last night from Houston, Texas. All kinds of crazy finishes and all kinds of storylines to get into. So we're going to be breaking down that. Of course, atop the card, you're now UFC lightweight champion is Charles Dubronx Oliveira. 31-8 and eight overall, 11 years in the UFC, most submissions, most finishes. I mean, he's done it all and finally secured his place atop the mountain as your new UFC lightweight champion. So congrats to him. But basically this episode, guys, we're going to be sticking uh, true to the two-part format where I'm just going to recap the action from the fights from last night and pretty much that's it so that we can drop a midweek episode late Wednesday, early Thursday and give you our picks only for the following weekend's card so that way we can kind of keep it short and sweet and consistent size and uh yeah so for this episode i'm just going to go through each fight one by one give you my thoughts i took some notes while they were happening and uh hopefully they'll be kind of short sweet and concise and then we'll get back at you late wednesday early thursday for our picks for for next weekend because we have another awesome fight night card coming headlined by rob font taking on cody no love garbrandt so that's going to be a lot of fun too stay tuned for that later this week but before we get into any of that gotta make sure to remind you guys that this episode and everyone in fact is brought to you by dave decorsi and the DeCourcy Group. Dave and his son Blake were actually at UFC 262. They had a couple fighters there out there supporting. Both did well and a local fighter that kicked ass and ended up winning his fight, securing a 145 belt for his promotion and from what I hear, has secured himself a UFC contract as well. So very successful and awesome weekend for those guys out there. Uh, but if you guys want to get a home loan or take any cash out of the equity of your own home, please do support the fellow MMA combat sports fans and those who support the show by going to www.thedecorcygroup.com. That's T-H-E-D-E-C-O-U-R-C-Y group. Dot com and let them know the DLSS podcast sent you, and it does really help us out a lot. So getting right to it, starting off the night, Christos Gallegos versus Sean Soriano. Soriano was a late replacement, so he's normally a 145er. was talking about how he wants to go back down to that regardless of the outcome, but um, he started off busting up Gallegos, in my opinion, on the feet. He landed multiple right hands. Christos was kind of, you know, getting fucked up a little bit, and I was getting concerned for him. Um Soriano was you know, much faster. He had better footwork and his striking technique just seemed a little bit crisper. crisper. And then uh, Gallegos ended up switching it up. He ended up getting the takedown in the second round. And then eventually he found like a front headlock position and a scramble. And then it was a beautiful setup from there. He snatched a Darce super quickly. And when he sat back, he also sat back to scrunch over his opponent as well as um, he sensed the leg on the way down. So he didn't like wait till he was down to cinch it. So I don't know. It's a little detail I found to be pretty impressive. And he isolated the leg at the same time. So when he rolled over as he was falling back to the ground, the leg was already trapped and the choke was all the way in. And um, Soriano, man, he he went to sleep. He didn't tap. He looked improved at the beginning of the fight, to be honest with you, in the first round. After the six years away, he looked a lot better than he looked when he uh, you know took his time away from the UFC. Uh, but, again, with his improvements and his uh, desire to to want to fight actually at 145, I'd like to see him with a full camp back at 145. <clears throat> but congrats to Gallegos, man. He secured at the ver- first fight of the night. He ended up getting one of those new Texas-sized 75K bonuses, for so good for him. In the second fight, Tucker Lutz versus Kevin Aguilar. Uh, Lutz was just way more explosive and athletic, and he secured the takedown both first and second round, pretty much controlled 
the grappling exchanges when they happened, and then on the feet, he had a beautiful check left hook and lead hook, lead left hooks. His left hook landed a bunch on Aguilar. Aguilar kept trying to get inside. He kept trying to press the action. But the first couple rounds, man, he was just getting kind of torn up on the feet. And uh, all, all any left hook that, that Lutz, Lutz threw, I felt like it was landing clean. Even DC was talking about in the commentary. But Aguilar's a dog, man. He stuffed his nails. He kept coming forward, kept putting the pressure. And the third round, even, he just kept put, pushing the pace, even after taking a good amount of uh, left hooks to the face. And um, he had a much better third round. Lutz obviously is going to slow down after all that punishment and, and move, him, move him backwards at that point. And, you know, he wasn't able to rely on his wrestling. Actually, Aguilar was able to kind of stuff a few of those takedowns in the third and continue to just come forward. Obviously, most people, myself included, thought he needed a stoppage to get the victory. And, man, at the very end of the round, man, Aguilar was basically just going for it, pressing forward. And I thought, you know, since he didn't finish him, that it was going to be Lutz 29-28. And two of the, the three judges agreed with me. And then one of them actually gave... Uh, Tucker Lutz all three rounds so congratulations to Tucker Lutz on a dominant performance and then the next one Gina Mazzani versus Priscilla Cachoeira this fight was crazy did not go how I expected at all Mazzani was big and strong like I said in the breakdown she was very physically imposing for the weight class catch a beating is this chick's nickname though and she you know has got a nickname based on the fact that she can take damage and just keeps coming kind of like we were talking about with Kevin Aguilar but zombie girl is is Cachoeira's nickname so uh, there was a couple scrappy exchanges at the beginning of the first round, but then Mazzani ended up getting, you know, Cachoeira up against the fence, some upper body grappling, outside reap, underhook on the left side, twice ended up controlling the top position and just, you know, having some success with that uh, ground and pound. Not a lot of damage, but a lot of control. Um, up on the feet and then back down throughout the first round. But overall, Mazzani controlled the entire first round. Aside from a couple strikes during those crazy exchanges, right? And then in between rounds, Mazzani seemed really, really concerned about Cachoeira's power. Even her weight, even her corner was saying, like, you know, you took her best shots. Don't worry about that. The takedown is unstoppable. So basically, like, rinse and repeat, right? And anytime I get the opportunity, I got to, you know, always give my man James Krauss the credit because he is the man lately. He's really emerged as a remarkable coach. Perfect interaction, you know, in between rounds, not just with this fight, but in general. But, you know, Per, perfect like uh, balance of encouragement slash emotional motivation and like technical instruction and he basically just you know told Bazzani continue to pursue the takedown and you know he doesn't overwhelm them you know um, but in 18 seconds into the very next round Bazzani does end up getting the takedown she ends up on top and half guard um, you know some scrambles from there but Priscilla was trying to get up, wasn't able, and, and overall Mazzani was able to control the scrambles, but just didn't inflict very much damage again, and even less than in the first round. And I've already seen a lot of people, you know, point out this to be, a, you know, controversy with regarding to the fight, which was got it got stood up. You know, you see sometimes referees are a little different in terms of how long they let it they let it go. If there's really not many much improvement of position and, and enough damage being inflicted, you know, sometimes you get the stand up. It's a controversial topic. We could you know debate it on a whole another episode. You know, uh, but because of that fact, they get stood up around the two minute mark, and Mazzani is completely exhausted. And she's cut also, but she's just completely exhausted. She probably, what you know, other people are arguing, was most likely been able to control the top position and not let Priscilla up, but not maybe inflict too much damage or get the fight finished um, over the, the course of the next two minutes to, to win the fight. But it gets stood up, 
and she's completely exhausted and cut. Starts getting caught with a couple really hard right hands clean. Catch later, like I said, her nickname is Zombie because she just keeps walking Mazzani down. Kind of like I was talking about with Kevin Aguilar in the last fight, but um, you know, she was actually able to inflict damage because of how just gassed Mazzani was. She kept coming forward, and eventually, uh, it was, I don't remember the exact time they got stopped, but Mazzani was completely spent and exhausted to the point where she wasn't, she had nothing left, and she wasn't defending herself, so Mike Beltran stepped in. Oh, yeah, 34 seconds left in round two, and then zombie girl Priscilla Catchabitting ends up dishing out one of her own this time. It was just, like I said, kind of like something we could up for debate at a future episode or if you guys want to submit your opinions on this but it is kind of interesting about the whole debate surrounding stand-ups and and how in this particular fight it definitely did change the momentum and how tired Gina was and you know she wasn't able to survive so you know should it have been stand-up or how much is the the responsibility of the fighter that's on bottom to do something about it and get up so it's one of those things that I'd love to hear you guys opinion on. But moving on, Andrea Lee versus Antonina Shevchenko. Relatively close on the feet uh, at distance for the first round. M- much more powerful, though, for Antonina when she was in the clinch at all. Like, she had a full control of the plum, had some really good hard knees, I felt like, when they were in the clinch. But uh, Andrea Lee, she landed a couple clean shots, a couple of good right hands, and left uh, really close towards the end of the round that I felt like kind of had Antonina dazed a little bit. So she was able to take her to the ground, ended up on top at the end of round one. My overall kind of assessment of the first round is I felt like Antonina had a lot, some good knees, a lot better knees from in the clinch for Antonina, and then a couple clean shots from Lee, and then that takedown, of course, towards the end of the round as well. So first round was close, but I gave it to, to Lee pretty pretty clean. And then the second round, a couple crazy-ass scrambles towards the beginning of the round. And then like what I'd call like an overthrow, not quite like a judo throw, it's like an overthrow where like they're both moving back, backwards in a scramble, and she uses her momentum against her, and and she like did like a back backflip kind of overthrow, and then a full judo hip toss ended up on the. This is Andre Lee I'm talking about. Ended up on top, and then set up a mounted triangle, rolled to her back, and then landed like some clean elbows while slowly securing the side angle of the triangle. Antonina was able to defend, and Lee's legs just like over like she had her there. I don't even know how long, and she kept trying to throw strikes, throw elbows, and just kind of try to continue to secure that angle and uh, end up making her go to sleep or tap. But um, Antonina was able to defend her legs, became super gassed, as I said, and she kind of was just holding on at that point. She was having trouble able, able to like complete the choke, so to speak. And she just kept striking while holding her in place for the entire round for the most part till finally like 10 seconds left, I think, or something like this. She heard the clapper. So she ended up going for the arm bar, like a triangle arm bar, and she put – Antonina's arm behind her own armpit ended up like stretching out her hips while uh, while leaning back and uh, holding the triangle at the same time. Oh man, it was it was brutal, and then she ended up getting the tap. And then the next one was Jordan the Beverly Hills Ninja Wright versus Jamie Pickett. This fight was a shot out of a cannon. It was crazy. Uh, but for this fight, I remember on Wednesday's show that I ended up going with Pickett, and this is one of those where I went back and I refreshed my memory to see who Jamie Pickett was because I wasn't quite sure. And I remember that I'd seen him on uh, the Dana White Contender Series after I'd, I looked him up. And although, like, he does have many physical gifts, I'll give him that. And he, he may, in fact, go on to have a sustained, you know, sustained success later on in the UFC down the line. You never know. But from what I saw in the Contender Series, this guy has an extreme, like, self-confidence issue. And he doesn't have the same mentality of some of those guys, like, say, like a Justin Gaethje, for instance, who was literally talking about how excited he was to, like, feel Barboza's leg kicks you know and wanted to feel their bones clack against each other before they fought and don't you worry we'll definitely be getting more into uh, that fight the Barboza fight in a little bit don't worry 
But from what I remember, Jamie Pickett was just too risk adverse. Like he was too tentative, and he just doesn't have that dog in him at this point. Like I would say more of an athlete than a fighter. I've kind of had that conversation before. And if you contrast that with the Beverly Hills Ninjas, all action all the time, maybe even to a fault at times, I felt like there was like a strong chance that Jordan Wright would overwhelm Pickett early. So I changed my pick, and I'm glad I did because that's exactly what happened. And like to further my point, if you listen to DC at the beginning of the fight, he says pretty much the same thing where he saw Jamie Pickett like begin to throw a couple strikes but then pull back, not really willing to commit in, uh, to the exchange. But eventually Pickett was able to back up Jordan uh, up against the fence, and at this point you'll find Jordan you know, with his back pushed up against the fence and Pickett on his hips attempting a takedown, and then a few Travis Brown elbows to the side of the head later, Wright was able to reverse the position and almost finish the fight right there with some ground and pound, and then, but Jamie was kind of able to scramble and get back up to his feet, took another knee right then. Recognizing that Pickett was hurt, he just continued to pursue him, man. Jordan Wright just kept kept it going. It was extremely chaotic. They were like one from one side of the octagon all the way to the other. But Wright was able to get a hold of him though and drop it him again with a crazy devastating knee straight to the dome. And it was like from the clinch position as he was like turning. So he ended up falling to his back and then ground and pound and just finished him. It was like three minutes. So four seconds left in the first round. Wild fight while it lasted, man. Jordan Wright, man, always making it interesting. We'll see where he goes from here. And then we move on to Lando Venata versus Mike Grundy. For, so for this fight, I was really concerned with the takedown ability of Grundy, right? Given his wrestling pedigree due to the fact that if you look back and look at all Lando's career, he, you know, you pretty much will find that he gets pretty much taken down at least once in every one of his fights uh, at some point, unless you're John McDessie. Uh, but that being said, I really thought this could end up being like a boring fight with Lando unable to get a, enough offense off and you know, be all, not able to execute on the feet and be on his back for the majority of the rounds with Grundy being able to grind out a decision. So that was like my main concern, basically. But this is one of those other uh, picks of mine that, thankfully, on Wednesday's show I ended up going with Grundy, but I ended up switching to Groovy instead because uh, something I didn't quite think about until a little bit later in the week, which is I forgot this was Venata's first trip down to 145, and then when I saw how shredded he was going to the weigh-ins, like, I thought it could have gone one of two ways. Either Lando totally depleted himself far too much to be able to like put up with the grappling heavy pressure and pace from a credentials uh, wrestler like Grundy, or his like new size and strength advantage over the smaller guy and like just someone smaller than he's used to going up to facing might be the difference maker and be able to actually fight off the takedowns way better. And even though his technique wasn't really lacking before, but sometimes like the bigger guy can just take you off your feet and there's really nothing you can do about it. So for Lando, I thought like when I saw him have the energy he did and seemed to be in like really good spirits, like surrounding the weigh-ins and stuff, even though he did look super sucked out and shredded, like, I don't know. I was hoping for the latter and I was, and that's pretty much the way it went down. Like, Lando's really fluid on in control. He controlled range really well, like he's he's done before. He's he's really effective, and yeah, he had to fight off a bunch of takedown attempts. But um, you know, he was able to stay safe, and ultimately was able to control the entire fight on the feet with his dynamic striking and groovy flow. And you can never go a weekend without having something weird going on with the scoring, especially in Texas. There's a wonky ass card, and and this was one of them. Like one judge had it 30-27 for Grundy, while the other two scored the fight for Venata. So I'm not really sure what the one judge was looking at, but thankfully the right guy got the nod and really opens a ton of options up for Lando going forward in this totally stacked featherweight division. So I'm pumped. 
But then this next fight just made me sad, man. I know it's a consequence to kind of being a fan of the sport for so long, but and similar to like watching Cowboy and Tony go over time, which we'll talk about later. Uh, it just bums me out to see all these like legends of the sport go out there and just kind of get defeated by these hungry lions. You know what I mean? Like you have to give credit to Andre Muniz. This is, you know, who even said during the fight, fighter meeting, that he has no reservations going to the ground with Jacare, and he actually thinks he's a better grappler than Jacare, and would be excited to test out his skills in this fight if it goes there. And it was almost like, I was like, when Joe and DC were talking about it, the exact same thing during the opening moments of the fight, and in hindsight, you're like, why did you have to do that, guys? Because it was like, you know, it was, it was like reminiscent, I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but you've got to check it out, of this old-school jiu-jitsu match between Hodger Gracie and Jacare, where they even brought it up. If you were listening to the commentary, Joe was talking about it, where Jacare got his arm broken and was a boss as fuck, didn't tap, and was able to actually tuck the arm and go on to win the match on points against Hodger Gracie. Like, that's insane. And it was no, no, it wasn't the same arm. It was the left back then, and it was the right arm last night. But unfortunately, in MMA, if a limb clearly breaks, like on an opponent is injured like that, like the referee's just going to jump in, and like like he did in this case, and step in and call the fight. Like, do you remember when Herb Dean did that with uh, the famously, like, Tim Sylvia fight versus Randy Couture, where Tim Sylvia didn't even know his arm's broken? Um, sad story of, of Tim Sylvia. You guys check that out. His arm just never fully recovered, but. Different story for a different time. I already, you know, I already put the picture of the X-ray and the metal plates in his arm on my Instagram story, but I'll make sure to put it in my post for the episode for you sickos that want to go check that kind of stuff out. But just like back in the day, absolutely no grimace on the face of Jack Ray. He's one tough motherfucker, and just kind of sucks to see a legend of the sports, most notably known for grappling jiu-jitsu, get defeated in that way. You know, um, just continue the the trend we're seeing though. Once dominant figures in the sports slowly beginning to lose a step and or, you know, not be able to compete at the same level this stage in their career. Mix that with the new wave of upcoming fighters who are just, you know, standing on the shoulders figuratively of all those who came before them in terms of technique, metagame, sports science and recovery and all this and everything else. And so the sport continues to evolve at an incredible rate. And when you have an organization like the UFC who doesn't, you know, have very many quote-unquote legends fights and just continues to feed the old to the young and, and build the names of the new generation, off the old guys, we're just going to continue to see things like this as fighters age out. And regrettably, mostly, I understand I'm talking about like Jacare, on you know, focusing mostly on him, but you know, he's just such a mainstay of my MMA fandom, and I've, I've been a fan of his since back in the Strike Force days. And we should really be giving most, you know, all the praise to Andre Muniz for backing up his words and going out there and executing one hell of a performance, setting him up himself up for a big fight next, you know. Uh, got a name like Jocker on your record that's not going to go unnoticed and we'll see if it happens but you know the same with Chris Weidman who was up and around slowly by the way walking on his social media yesterday um, I have no doubt in my mind that we'll see Jock Ray and Chris both back in the octagon at least one more time before they're done for good. But transitioning over to the fight of the night, an old veteran that is still knocking heads, Shane Burgos versus Edson Barboza. And uh, I know you guys have been waiting for me to talk about this one, and I'm not even going to talk about it. I'm just kidding. But this is one of those fights, though, I really almost don't want to say anything because no matter what I say, I it won't come anywhere near close to relaying to you how awesome this fight was. Like... I absolutely 100% recommend that you did not, if you did not see this fight in its entirety, not just the highlights, that you go back and you enjoy this fight from beginning to end. And speaking of the end of the fight, the way Shane Burgos said like that weird delayed reaction to that overhand right bomb that Barboza had just landed, it was quite strange. I'll definitely admit that. But 
If you've ever been rocked so bad before where your hearing goes, your vision is not only blurred, but like kind of like spinning like you've had one too many and the pressure in your head is so great it feels like it's going to pop, then you can kind of relate to the look on Burgos' face. And as those couple seconds last, lapsed and as he like realized that he wasn't going to be able to just grit and bear it like he thought he would, and as it slowly took over the and like the level of confusion was on his face, it was like as to why his motor skills and vision wasn't not only coming back, it was like getting worse and like it was an interesting thing to, to witness. And again, unfortunately, I've been in that position kind of before and it was it was more surprising to me that neither of those guys had gone down out cold already from all those shots that had been landed on both sides up to that point. Barboza's shin was all busted up and bleeding all over the place from like the few calf kicks he landed at the beginning of the fight were devastating. And then Burgos checked a couple of them too. Even Burgos threw a few hard calf kicks of his own later in the fight. And Burgos is boxing like his heavy body work and uh, the, the, all his combinations, man, they were landing. They were amazing to watch. And they, like I said, they were both landing hard shots on both sides. But the accumulation of damage coming from Barboza was just too much. And, you know, the always exciting, extremely powerful, especially now 145. Edson Barboza reminds everyone it's a dangerous game if you keep it standing with him. And then Caitlin Chukagian, man, she just keeps taking out these contenders. She gets a victory over Viviana Rujo. I thought it was classic Caitlin Chukagian, and she had a little bit of attitude added in, which is what her corner was asking her for in between rounds, uh, first and second. She was kind of trying to sit down on her punches a little bit more towards the end of the fight. She kept distance well, did what she always does normally in terms of good footwork and volume striking to make sure she's the busier fighter. But this is another one of those wonky scorecards I was talking about earlier. Um, in my opinion, the first round in this one was really the only one that wasn't 100% clear on who won. It was kind of close. Neither fighter really did anything to punctuate anything for their side and really secure the round. And stats will back that up. Caitlin only outstruck Viviane by uh, two strikes, 37 to 35. And on my scorecard, I actually had a, a Viviana winning the second round. It was clear, though, that Aruja was slowing right after the first and second round. And if you give her one of those three rounds, you could totally agree, um, you know, and even possibly the first round. But all three? No way. And Aruja clearly slowed down significantly while Caitlin looked like she was coming on. Um, the longer the fight went on. So in the third round, it was without question Caitlin's round. So ultimately, at the end of it, I thought it could, the decision could have gone either way, 29-28 to either fighter based on who he gave the first round to, essentially. And I'm not arguing like with the outcome at all, but Marcos Rosales is his name. He was the same judge in both that, this fight and the Land of Venata fight. And he's the one who needs to figure out what the hell he's looking at because um, he was the one that also gave it a 30-27 scorecard for the fighter who most people think lost and even one of the judges in the Venata fight had it 30-27 the other way so uh get a handle on these inexperienced judges texas and do it now before they really fuck up someone's money and career for their because of their incompetence that's not cool but in the end great job to caitlin you know she's legit in the weirdest position in the division where she's basically beaten pretty much all the contenders but has a stoppage loss to the champ pretty recently so i think you know, she's definitely going to need at least one more to get back to that title shot. And I think uh, I think it's uh, Lauren Murphy is supposed to be the one that takes on Shevchenko next, potentially. So we'll see how that shakes out. But Caitlin continues to stake her place up there in the top of the division. And this next fight was one of those fights that just kind of makes you frustrated when you're watching it. If you know what I'm saying, like DC made a really good point if you're listening to the commentary about uh, given the like surrounding circumstances, you know, involving this fight and Bontarin missing weight, and even being up a weight class, this guy missed weight. Schnell would have really benefited from being able to push the pace a lot more 
And I completely agree with that. Like, now it's interesting, right? Because we can listen into the corner, right, in between rounds. And it seemed like the issue, in my opinion, was sticking too much to the game plan in this case, not being able to adjust in the fight itself, which is kind of interesting, right? And it's a bit surprising to me because with Safe Saud, the head coach of Florida MMA in your corner, I'd expect that, you know, he'd be able to see what I and others were seeing and adjust, but they didn't. Now, I'm not about to sit here and criticize one of the best coaches in MMA and say I know better, but there, you know, there must have been something more going on than what we were watching on the screen because, or what we were aware of, because it just this this is what was happening. It was clear that Schnell's game plan was to fake and faint in order to pull out the strikes of Bontran in order to use his speed and 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 to try to counter Bontran coming forward. Since Bontran is the shorter fighter with the smaller reach, sometimes he can overextend himself, reaching for his opponent and. Schnell's speed and footwork, he was he was basically trying to get Bonter into chase and be able to back up, take angles, and counter cleanly. But, back to what DC was saying, there were other circumstances surrounding this fight that they were not considering in his corner. Bonter was not engaging nearly as much as they uh, he not, might have assumed that he was going to and that he normally does, and I'm certain that that was deliberate on his part. You know, he had to try to conserve energy during the, to due to a poorly executed weight cut. That was pretty obvious and well-known. So, you know, while Matt was on his stool between the first and the second, he even told his coach, like, he's lulling me to sleep. And, you know, he was clearly frustrated. And over the next two rounds, he just wasn't able to draw out enough opportunities. And over the course of the fight, Bontran landed some good, clean, hard shots of his own here and there. And so that was all it took to sway the judges in a couple of the rounds and get the nod. So they both have a lot. Then they need, they'll go back and they have much to learn from this fight, Bontran pre-fight, of course. But the lesson that I take from it is that flexibility is important and the ability to have multiple game plans, multiple different approaches, and be able to adjust, you know, depending on what's going on in the fight. If the main thing that you expected to happen isn't happening, then you need to have the ability to adjust. And in this case, again, a rarity for someone like Safe Sayud, in my experience, um, but they didn't even realize why their approach wasn't working. And that ultimately is what led to the decision loss. And so I guess we'll see where both fighters go from here. Which brings us to the co-main event. Now, this fight was also kind of a weird one where I don't really know quite what to think. I don't think Tony is completely washed but the wild, unorthodox cardio machine, you know, that people didn't quite know how to deal with before, is I feel like is gone forever. So the main thing I'll say about Tony is basically just echoing the same thing that Dean Thomas said on the broadcast, which is, like, because Tony has, like, had the ability to rely on these other attributes over the course of his career, and it's been so effective for him up to this point that it's it's limited his ability to have sound fundamentals in some areas of the game, and after Charles Oliveira, in my opinion, gave the blueprint on how you, t if you can take down and control Tony on the ground with, you know, basic fundamental but effective top control, then you can stifle any momentum, which is basically what Tony needs in order to have success. You know, he's kind of like a snowball rolling downhill if you let him, if you let him build momentum. Um, you know, it's not a good thing. And it seems like Darius, who even said as much afterwards, realized that if he was able to control the fight and have such an advantage in those positions, then why even try to get into a blood and guts brawl with a guy who even in this fight wouldn't tap to a submission that 100% of other fighters would have? 
You know, that heel hook was bad, and I really hope that Tony's knee isn't completely trashed from it. But if you get a chance, though, because I think a lot of people don't really know much about Benil Dariush, I recommend checking out, like, the post-fight press conferences a lot of times, and in this case, I highly recommend it, because when he was responding to the questions about the booze he was receiving and stuff like that, and, like, how the crowd was very supportive of Tony, he made a few really good points and reminded fans not to be fickle, you know, and that he's glad Tony gets the kind of support that he does, and he thinks he earned it, but... Doesn't want to see fans turn on him just because he's not doing so well. I don't know, just a really good dude and a classy way to go about it. And he's better than most of us give him credit for, I feel like. And at the same time, I don't quite think Tony, you know, is is at his prime. I think he's starting to slow down and and not be the same force that he once was. So that's kind of the story of the fight. And Benil, in this case, after getting this win, I feel like has secured himself a top five opponent next. And Really just gets to sit back and watch, see how the landscape changes over the next couple months while Connor and Dustin, the trilogy wraps up. And, you know, also after we find out who's going to face Charles next for the title, so which we'll talk about now. But no matter what, he's put himself in a great spot. And finally, the main event, man, tale of two rounds, right? As DC said, man, the sport of MMA is so crazy that you can be that close to getting finished at the end of the first round and then 19 seconds into the second round, the fight is over and now you're the UFC lightweight champion. It's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, I'm not going to speak too much on the actual fight because it was only 79 seconds long and I think... To really understand the way the fight went down in terms of the 180-degree momentum shift, you really should just go watch it. But it was definitely pretty incredible. Just like Charles Oliveira's career, right? And like, if you guys remember, Nate and I did a Bronx deep dive episode a while back after Charles beat Tony. And I encourage you guys to go have a listen if you haven't already because this guy's literally done it all over the course of his 11-year career in the UFC. And if you take anything away from my message, it's that nothing against Michael Chandler at all, you know? I actually think he's a really good dude, great husband, father, and phenomenal fighter. But to see what Charles has had to overcome, not just in his career, but in his life, to bring him to this point atop the mountain with the UFC gold wrapped around his waist, it's just inspiring, man. I don't care who you are. And if Dustin Poirier gets through Connor in July, being the uncrowned champ that he is, I'm certain he's going to get the next opportunity to face Charles for the unified title. And if he wins, I'll feel the same way about him. These guys are, are woven from the same cloth. If, if you listen to that episode back, uh, the Duvonks Deep Dive, you'll hear me say that then as well. And I'm just, you know, I'm stoked for these guys. And uh, what a night, man. Congrats to Charles Oliveira from the favelas to the champion of the world. Pretty cool. Well deserved. But that's it. That does it for this week's installment of the D-Love Special Sauce Podcast. Hope you guys liked the show. If you did, go over to Apple and iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and a positive review. While you're there, turn the notification bell on. That way you're on top of all the most current content. And if you're already supporting a small independent podcast, please do check out and support all the small businesses that support us just like you guys by listening every week. We got Monique Taylor with Strong Women Designs. We got Dream Loud Collections, my girl Nora, custom handmade jewelry. Check her out. OC Party Rentals, Paint Bay, The Journey of a Modern Day Painter, Upper Glass Tent, Eden Buttery Pancakes is getting people shredded. Vargas Auto Spa. California Shirt Smith. Check out Justin for some custom print works. Blake Builder and the Builder System. Mac Noodle Sabachi Chef. Ricardo with Neighborhood Auto Care. Sauce Meals. Angie Snyder. And of course, he loves Tumor Tonic. But last and not least, MMT Fitness. Make sure to check them out on Instagram. Make sure to go out and check out the gym. Exit every parkway off the 5 freeway. The first class is always free. Tell them the DLSS podcast sent you. But that does it for this week, guys. Until next week, same time and same place, enjoy the fights.